Space Watchers, this is Space Cafe Radio, your channel about trends, great people and real conferences. I'm Thorsten, publisher of spacewatch.global. During the 14th European Space Conference in Brussels, I had the great honor talking with Josef Aschbacher, Director General of the European Space Agency ESA, about the new strategic accelerators. They are Space for a Green Future, Rapid and Resilient Crisis Responses, Protection of Space Assets, and they were adapted by the Council of Ministers in Matosinos, Portugal, in November 2021. It is very impressive to see the speed of innovation and the depth of his work in the last months. My first question was about Space for a Green Future. What is it? And what can space do besides monitoring for a green future? Well, there's really a, a lot to be done. And let's maybe step back a moment on the problems which we have as, uh, as people, as humans on this planet. And everyone would agree that, of course, today everyone is busy with COVID and the pandemic, uh, but hopefully this will pass at some point of time. But then the real big problem of our planet is climate change. And this is undisputed. We have a very strong European Green Deal agenda. All the countries have to be climate neutral by mid of this century, some countries even earlier. That's an obligation they have committed to. So my question is, what can space do to help them to become carbon neutral? And there's a lot that can be done. On one side, of course, you start with observations uh, that you understand what are the processes and what happens. But that's not enough. What you really want to do is not only know what happens today, but simulate what happens in the future or what would happen if I change one parameter against another one. And I take a few examples to make it a, a bit more visible. Take agriculture. If you change from one agricultural crop to another one, what's the impact on the carbon cycle and on the people? Not only on the climate, but also on the people. If you change agriculture, it's impacting society. Farmers or consumers or waste from the farm to the consumer and so on. Another example is transport or, or energy. If you switch off your coal power plants 10 years earlier or 10 years later, this has an impact, of course, on the climate, but also on the people. So this is what I want to do through what we call a, a digital twin earth that we simulate with a digital twin where we put observations from space with earth system models, with socioeconomic models, with high performance computing, artificial intelligence in order to do all the computations and to simulate our planet on a computer. Okay, this may sound crazy. It is a, a big challenge. This is really what we want to do. We want to create what-if scenarios where you can change scenarios like on a knob and, and therefore see what would be the, the consequence of doing of changing one thing against another. An extreme case would be what would happen if I deforest 50% of the Amazon rainforest. Of course, nobody wants this to happen. But of course, you want to have extreme calculations. What does it mean for the Amazon forest people, also for Brazil and surroundings, for sea level rise, for the shipping industry, for cities on uh, coastlines uh, and all the people that are affected by this. This is a huge complex model, which we would like to create and build up. Of course, this needs a lot of uh, expertise and assets put together. But this is at the core of uh, Digital Twin Planet, for example. And this is also at the core of one of the building blocks of the Green Future Accelerator, which we want to build up. I found it very fascinating and I don't want to go into the details. How is that technically done? Because it sounds super complex, but... What will happen with the results out of that? Is it just an educational purpose, a scientific purpose, or does it really can put into power somewhere and lead to decision? 
Yeah. This will have actually users everywhere. On one side, certainly decision makers to help them make decisions of how can I decarbonize my country in the best possible way by limiting the impact on people or still having economic growth, for example, which of course is very important. And this is for decision makers, but also the general public. I think they want to know what can we do in our level in the decarbonization process and how does it affect the society at large. The economy, another example, insurance companies, shipping industry, oil and gas industry. There are many industrial domains where they're all producing carbon and they want to know what is the impact of my industrial activity on the carbon cycle. And they want to simulate that in order to better react and be more carbon neutral or have a better carbon neutral economy in order to meet some of the targets which they have, either for visibility uh, and acceptance or even legally, because uh, there are legal payments to be made if you are going uh, bottom thresholds. But so there, we will provide trusted data for a scenario. Exactly. We will provide trusted data, exactly, for scenarios. But the other part, which is also part of the Green Future Accelerator, is we will create or we will ask industry and we will stimulate the creation of, we call it factories, so information factories that are producing information related to the decarbonization, for example. There will be maybe one of these data factories uh, will produce optimized shipping routes based on measurements of ocean streams or currents or wind, weather, and so on as a force to minimize the consumption of fuel for the ship to go from Amsterdam to Hong Kong or wherever they go. There will be a lot of these little information factories feeding certain segments of the economy or of the society. NASA said in the last years that they give the Leo area where most of the Earth's observation satellites are to private companies, so to commercialize, as we said. What is the role of the commercial companies in this scenario you just mentioned? Are they putting their data in or are they completely out? What we certainly want to do is to implement the accelerators, also other programs, but the accelerators together with commercial companies. And there you have uh, different variations of their role. Certainly in some parts, uh, we need to develop some elements of infrastructure more as an ESA investment, as a development. But in other parts, we are just a customer. And we will say that we buy a product that is uh, a product that they deliver. This can be a satellite constellation they build up and we buy the data from them. This can be information which they produce and we buy this information, of course, putting it into a wider framework in order to make sense and to be a puzzle or a building block of a bigger picture. So yes, I would like to stimulate private industry, give them responsibility because they are fast, dynamic, very agile in finding solutions. But I need to make sure that it fits in the overall framework and the quality is according to the requirements. Just to repeat, it's not You're building this model not just out of ESA data, you also get it are open for data from the private company. Absolutely. That's uh, the big change of an accelerator compared to a classical ESA program, mm -hmm. uh, because the classical ESA program is really an ESA program where we propose something, we get it funded, mostly 100%, and yeah. then we deliver a satellite or a rocket. In this case, the ESA part funded maybe a smaller part, and we really want to build this up with building blocks of different partners, of course, with their own interests and their elements attached to it. But yes, this goes way beyond our classical way of how we work in space. Actually, I want to stimulate and to encourage other partners to join this larger thrive of decarbonization to take the first accelerator as an example, where space is one part, but certainly with many, many other partners as well. The second accelerator you have in your strategy is the Rapid and Resilience Crisis Responses. I thought about it and said, wait, we do have things on, on crisis response already. All the ingredients are there. We have UN Spider, we have the UN Charter, 
communication initiatives, what we just have seen for Tonga Island. Also, things happen already. We are starting not from zero. Why is that so important as part of the strategy? Yeah. No, absolutely. But the same also applies to the first accelerator. Of course, we always start from what we have. We have a strong Copernicus program, the best in the world, I would say, today in terms of Earth observation capability. But if there's a crisis, it takes maybe one day, maybe two days, maybe three days to get an image because simply of the orbit mechanics of the satellite, the Sentinel-1 and Sentinel-2 coverage is every five days, so every six days globally. So if there's a big fire or big flooding, you have to wait typically one, two, three days until you get these images. Of course, there are other satellites, so you have to put it all together. And you may be lucky and you don't have to wait three days, but only two days or... So what I really want to have is a, an almost instantaneous uh, observation of our planet in case of a crisis. If there's a crisis, a flooding or a fire, you need the information quick. So on one side, you need the satellite to be there. That means you need even more satellites, agile satellites that can be steered, number one. Number two, these satellites may need to be connected in space because there may be a satellite with a larger resolution detecting something and then one with a more finer resolution in the next orbit, an hour or three hours later, to take a detailed image that needs to be connected in space to really program each other. You actually need to apply, and that's the plan we have, artificial intelligence in space, where this network of satellites talk to each other and I wouldn't say completely program themselves, but really make some pre-decisions also in space, depending on pattern recognition that can be found already with one of the satellites. We had such an experiment of artificial intelligence in space uh, through the FISAT-1 satellite, launched in 2019, did a very simple experiment just to see that it works, and it works. So you can now program uh, a satellite in space to detect fires automatically, yeah. uh, because normally it's not so easy to find them. Uh, and then this detection can lead to other satellites monitoring the same space in a more frequent time scale. And then, of course, send information, not necessarily to a big receiving center somewhere far away, but to the firemen or to the uh, civil protection unit somewhere close, maybe even on a simple device like a mobile phone. So, of course, to build up all this needs a denser network of satellites, computing, we call it cognitive cloud computing in space, on board the satellites, interconnected satellites, and a system that then connects to the user. And all this needs to be set up. You're right. We have much of it already in place, but we need to complement with uh, some elements in order to have a fully operational system uh, being built up. And that's at the core of this second accelerator on rapid and resilient crisis response. Many of those, what you said, private companies are also working on that. I mean, fire detection with Aurora well, taking. Voilà. But that's exactly what we want. We want to, to encourage them and to buy the data from them. I'm not rebuilding what they are doing. The opposite. I would like to be there and guarantee that if you have a constellation that gives me an image every three hours, that I will buy your data. And this is a long-term process, of course, where we want to encourage private industry to invest, take a risk. But they know that we are, as a public customer, together with the commission and other entities, and this is part of the accelerator build-up, that we find this anchor customer base, that we buy this for the next couple of years. And I think that's what private industry needs in order to invest. It's an interesting change of the role of ESA in the that's future. A, and that's a drastic change of the role of ESA, uh, very significant. We do it in a small scale today, so it's not that we need to change our governance setup. We can do it but we're not practicing it. And this is something that certainly will be a change of practice. The third strategic accelerator is protecting space assets. And that's something what is very close to our heart of Space Watch Global, where we try to look after uh, space sustainability, space situational awareness, traffic management, and so on and so forth. Whatever word just appears for that, we try to get it out. 
all these terms are widely used, but differently defined. And we heard it here also on the conference that space traffic management was used so widely. And you could hear just it was the awareness part that people are talking about. So what is behind your ideas of this accelerator before we go into the detail? No, this is certainly one that probably has a bit of a room of development in the way how you develop and what you do. But one thing is clear in Europe, and I can only speak of the assets of ESA and in Europe, we're having more and more satellites in orbit on which we depend every single day for navigation, for communication, for Earth observation, and also other uh, satellites. So we depend on them. So we need to be sure that, first of all, we protect them, that we can avoid collisions with debris, for example. This obviously starts with knowing what is out there before you implement the space traffic management type of approach where you then manage actively satellite maneuvers in order to avoid collisions. So yes, we need the awareness to start with. We need then to have this information on a routine operational basis. Of course, today we get it from the US first and foremost, but we need a European independent data source, and this is at the core of this accelerator. But also, it goes a step further. And this really is, it's uh, not only the space traffic management portion of it, we also want to play an active role in keeping our orbits clean in the sense of sustainable. So on one side, as you know, through clear space, we are removing objects from orbit. Of course, this is a very slow task and it would take a lot of time. In-orbit servicing is another element where we want to extend the lifetime of satellites and therefore, I would say, not as many satellites necessary because the satellite lives longer. The other element is we would like to develop a net zero pollution strategy for ESA by 2030, meaning if we put one satellite in orbit, we either put another one out or we make sure that the satellite put in orbit has a mechanism to deorbit safely at the end of its life. So to basically not increase the number of satellites, but keep it at a constant level. This all needs uh, technological solutions, programmatic solutions, sometimes political uh, approaches to make the whole thing happen. But it is clear that this is not something that you do in isolation as ESA. This is a global effort. And this, uh, as we all know perfectly well, and the majority of satellites are not the ones that are owned by ESA or by Europe. They are owned by other players. And this certainly involves also a dialogue, a coordination with the ones who have the assets in space. And that is a challenge. And this is something where I think Europe can play a role as a neutral partner globally between the different operators or owners of these satellites. It needs to be developed. It doesn't exist today apart from the UN mechanism. But I think that is not reactive enough to do it properly. And yes, there is a certainly a regulatory aspect as well that needs to be developed. What you just described is very, very complex and multifaceted environment. And let's try to get more into the details. You said we do get our data from the US to know where our assets are. But it's proven that this one single source is not enough. There are private companies also in this field that's going out, trying to provide these kind of services. What is ESA doing to increase their own capacities in collecting data about the location of satellites? Let me start at the most simple demand which I have as ESA. I need to protect my own assets. Mine means for of our member states. I need to have a mechanism in place to protect them. So yes, sir, absolutely, as you say, I need to know first of all where they are. So we need the situational awareness component, which is making sure that we know what is where. And of course, this concerns debris first and foremost, because... Uh, they are the, the parts that damage uh, assets. And yes, this is something that we need to have at the global level. So this is not something that is only uh, an ESA 
limited task in Europe. We have the European Commission engaging in this as well. We just heard that the STM regulation will be proposed by Commissioner Breton. There are member states who have some assets, some radars that in some member states do understand or get information of what is where. But again, this is not sufficient what we have today. The European assets put together as we have them are not sufficient in terms of accuracy and seeing the small enough particles for the awareness. So yes, we need to improve that. And this is exactly what we need to achieve. Today we are, as you say, we are depending mostly on information from our friends and colleagues in America. This will change. There's a commercialization also taking place here. We have some companies who are offering this service commercially and they can sell us the data. Again, the question is, do we want to buy this from a, let's say, a, new, a US commercial company? Do we think that is good enough or not? Maybe not. We need some autonomy, as we call it. And yes, we need to develop European assets. So yes, this is a multifaceted activity. And yes, we are at the very early stage of developing it, the architecture and the way how we work. How does USST fit into the picture? Is it part of it? I, I assume it is part. It will have to be part of this. So as I say, we do not have the solution or the blueprint of how this works. Don't forget that the accelerators have only been adopted in Matosinos. I have got a mandate to develop uh, content, governance and funding for these accelerators. And this is something that I will do now. I'm already starting on workshops with the user community already in mid-January. But now this takes a couple of months, you can imagine, to really build up the rules of engagement for other partners to join these accelerators. And yes, some of these elements you mentioned, EUSST, will have to be certainly an element in this. And there may be a leading role of the European Union on the STM part. We do, of course, focus on the technical development of uh, technology uh, for somebody else to operate. So all this has yet to be discussed and is, there's no agreement today or no blueprint today uh, on the table. This needs to be established in the next couple of months. I'm very happy to see that it's not just on a national level or on some companies' level. You're driving it also to the highest political level. It was great to see in Cornwall at the G7 summit that space plays a role in the awareness of our top-level politicians. Yes. And we see it also, I think, from the appearance here of politicians at this conference. Another element you mentioned before was the usage of the various orbits. And you have been very vocal about the, the usage of several orbits by just one private company and how to go with it. Legally, we don't have an instrument to do something against them. But what are the ideas how we can overcome that? Because there are more constellations planned. My example for that is usually Rwanda with 330,000 satellites file. It is crazy. It's this claim for paper satellites, what we have seen in GEO already. But now it happens in LEO, in something what is very close to us and so important for our daily life. What are your thoughts? And I don't ask for solutions because I know that would be a wild dream to have one. But what are your thoughts on how we can yeah. go yeah. to that? Well, first, it is right that I have been quite vocal on the use of orbits and the use of space for everyone because we do depend on it. So it's a public good. And therefore, if one company or one person is owning half of the active satellites, uh, the statement has been interpreted as being provocative against this very person or this company. Not at all. I am very fascinated by the activities of Elon Musk and SpaceX, for example. And I think what he's doing for space is, is fascinating and very visionary. And I think many of us take really good uh, inspiration from that. So this is not to be misinterpreted or misread in that way. But what is a fact is that, yes, space gets crowded and we have to think about this. And I'm happy that this found a very strong echo internationally, well, that other people agree with that. And they say, yes, that's true. There is an issue on the table 
And so far, it was not really debated and nobody was daring to discuss because it is, for whatever reason, not on the horizon of uh, decision makers. And yes, I'm happy that this has found echo. I get a lot of feedback and even encouragement that this needs to be intensified because this is a problem to be solved. So I'm happy about that. But of course, I always see my limited role as the head of a space agency. I can only say that this is a problem. I may not be able to offer the solution, but I would like to trigger a discussion that leads to a solution. And this is what I need to do because I'm affected as the head of a space agency if there is not a better management and regulation of space. And this is exactly the core of my statements that we need to talk about this and we need to get the people on, on the table. As I say, this is not something that the European Space Agency will solve on behalf of the others. I can only engage with other players and raise the topic at the end of the day. It needs all the ones who are owning the satellites and who plan to put satellites in orbit to find an agreement, to find a solution. And I think it's in everyone's individual interest, even the ones who have uh, larger amounts of satellite data, they are endangered by the same debris as anyone else. And they have an interest to make sure that their overall the space uh, is regulated or is managed in a certain way, uh, of course, not hindering the use of it. This is very clear. And I'm sure they are very open and very interested in this discussion. So, yes, we need to launch it. For me, the most pragmatic way of doing it is to bring those countries and companies together around the table and simply ask the question, guys, what do we do? Or ladies, what do we do with this? And we need to, to address it. And what options are we having in order to discuss them? And there are technical options and there are regulatory options, and we need to go through them. Talking about space traffic management, what is also part of this pillar, how can a global solution, not just a European, a global solution look like? Because we have to talk about enforcement. We have to talk about potential new agency worldwide. What, what is debated? Is it something what is also eligible for you? Or I think we are at the beginning of this debate. And sometimes I compare space traffic management with air traffic management or even road traffic management. At the beginning... When the first cars were on the road a hundred years ago, they were just driving. Nobody, there were no rules. So you could drive on the left side, on the right side of the road. You could stop at intersection or not, and accidents happened. And uh, if you read in the history books, uh, the first <laughs> accidents of cars were pretty bad because people just used them. They had fun with them and they drove. And uh, yes, uh, eventually people realized if there are more cars, uh, you need to establish rules and, you know, have to drive on one side of the road and not on the middle on the other side. And uh, these rules have been established. Okay, this is 100 years ago. This is on cars. Space is a different domain. And on Earth. Yeah. And on, uh, and on Earth, uh, correctly. But in principle, the same applies in space. We are in an early phase of using space and only now. We don't forget up to 10 years ago, we had 1,000 active satellites in orbit. Now we get about 1,000 every single year. It's increasing exponentially. And this is, of course, a completely new situation. And now crowding, overcrowding of space, not physically, there's certainly plenty of, of space out, out there in space, but in terms of the orbits that are being used and the danger of debris on these orbits where the satellites are circling. So yes, it's becoming more and more urgent and you need to define rules also for that. And I repeat, the ones who are owning large numbers of satellites have a clear interest themselves, maybe even more than the one who has only one satellite, to regulate this space and in a sustainable way. Of course, not blocking them using space, but to regulate it to know what are the basic rules of it. And this is, uh, it may sound a bit generic, but yes, we have to do that. Thank you very much for your time. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you for listening today. If you want to stay on the pulse of space, visit our website, our mothership at spacewatch.global.com and subscribe 
to our newsletters. But of course, don't forget to become a Space Watcher. I'm Thorsten Greening, CEO and publisher of Spacewatch.global, your independent perspective of space. <laughs>